Good morning, and welcome to Positively Politics, the show we break down the sometimes complicated and often negative world of politics in a straightforward, unbiased, and academically rooted way. My name is Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of political science here at the University of Indianapolis, as well as your host for today's show. And I want to thank you for joining me this morning, loving these warmer weather, warmer temps. Um, and <laughs> gosh, yet another crazy week in terms of politics. I realize I say that a lot, but it bears repeating because this week we had something, I think, relatively wild on basically every level of government. Um, we're going to talk about Pelosi and Paul standing and speaking. Very different topics, different parties, different institutions. Uh, but nonetheless, it's important stuff that happened um, in Congress this week, not, not the least of which um, is the budget passing, barely, not totally on time, um, and overwhelmingly in terms of support in the Senate, but a lot of questions still remain um, as it's now been basically signed into law um, longer term. I don't, I don't know if it's possible for people to simultaneously win and lose, but that's exactly how I feel about the budget. Um, for Democrats, Republicans, for Americans, it's really interesting there. So we'll talk about that. I also wanted to discuss the state legislature. So we are halfway through, if you can believe it, the state legislative session. And of course, yesterday we had the filing deadline. So when we look ahead, what do we expect to see? How have some bills progressed? And some surprising ones. You know, if you're a big fan of alcohol, you'll be pleased to know it looks like Sunday sales is a go. But, you know, if you want to buy cold beer, then that's that's a little bit of a different story. And why are they different anyway. The, the support seems to be very different in terms of public opinion um, and also just what, what got the movement, the motivation. The CBD oil looks like that's going to be passing through as well. And if we look down at the local level, you know, one of my favorite levels of government, because it often seems that it's less dramatic. So unfortunately, I don't talk about it as much on the show because things are going smoothly. Things are going like we expect, um, except right now they're really not. And if you've been paying attention, you know, I know I spoke about it a little bit last week in terms of the City County Council President, Reverend Stephen J. Clay, um, having, I guess at this point now, the previous week, fired three people who he may or may not have had the authority to fire. And among them, the clerk and the clerk's secretary have come back and uh, issued a suit, a lawsuit against him. That was Thursday morning. And we're only essentially a week and a couple days away from the February 19th full city county council meeting. And so what's in store for us? It looks like we may very well have yet another new city county council president. This would make our third in less than two months. So needless to say, a lot of things happening in politics right now. So starting off with the federal level, looking at the budget, the question that seemed to keep lingering, I would always joke um, and I do mean this very facetiously because I'm, I'm not a horrible person, but it felt like the gift that kept on giving, at least for those of us who talk about politics for a living, because we would constantly have these short-term budget agreements that were hardly agreements. It was basically agreeing not to disagree and, uh, and to say, well, we'll just, we'll put this off. You know, and we kept doing that. And that's something that seems very unique <laughs> at the federal level because I don't know any place else where you would say, well, we can't decide on this, so thus we'll just we'll wait and address it later. And to systematically do that, 
you know, I talked about this uh, maybe two or three weeks ago. It would have been a bit longer than that, actually, when we had the last budget shutdown, which was the first in the Trump administration. And describing how, you know, when we've had these going back since Reagan era, you you've had multiple government shutdowns. Now, not a lot in every administration, but still virtually every administration had at least one. And the kind of lingering effects they have, but they are almost always because people can't agree on where we're spending money, how we're bringing in money. And then, of course, and this was really important in terms of the two-week government shutdown that happened in October of 2013 under the Obama administration, and also just now, the one that we had for three days under the Trump administration in January, but the political underlying reasons. But it's not just because we can't agree on money, it's because And I don't think this as a country, but certainly from our political party perspective, we are so in conflict that there is no compromise to be made. Or it seems that it can't be that what either party wants is so polar opposite of what the other is willing to agree to that we essentially, you know, kick the can down the road or uh, they like to say punt it. (laughs) We, We punt it over. I'm not sure if it's punting it, but obviously it's not getting a fourth down. You know, you're not scoring a touchdown. You are waiting until later to basically make a decision. So it's a non-decision. Maybe in that regard, we could consider it a punt. But if we look at what happened this week in terms of budgeting, I think it's the biggest win slash non-win we've seen in a long time for American politics. (laughs) And that's to say, I don't know how you frame this, but technically everyone got what they want. At the same time, I don't think anyone really did. So, so let's talk about this for a second. So if we're looking at the budgeting deadline, so the deadline was technically Thursday night at midnight, and <laughs> it did pass. The Senate was able to vote it through, um, and it went through the House as well. I think there were 71 votes in favor of it in the Senate. In the House, they had 240, so you actually had 73 Democratic members supporting it, but you also had a number of House Republicans, I think it was 67, if I remember correctly, that were voting against it. So it's bipartisanship in a weird way because not everyone necessarily agreed. But when it went through, you know, there were a couple hours there because they didn't pass it by midnight. So technically there was a short government shutdown that really didn't influence many agencies or people at all. I personally slept right through it because I go to bed at nine o'clock. Folks, and, and I get up early, but mm, wasn't staying up to see how this one was going to play out. And sure enough, the Senate was able to pass it through after you had this outstanding oratory uh, remark from Rand Paul. And so, of course, Rand Paul, Republican senator from Kentucky, I talk about him on the show from time to time. Really unique because he is a Republican, but he's a, a very libertarian Republican. And I think that he's pretty unabashed in his perspective of this. Nobody. Nobody thinks of him as towing the party line. You know, it's very clear who he is and what he stands for. And one of the things that he stands for as a libertarian and something that Paul has been talking about for a long time is fiscal responsibility from the conservative perspective. And so he was ardently opposed to this budget because of what it would do in terms of our national debt and because of the concerns that it would have. And he wasn't alone in this. A number of fiscal conservatives said, you know, We need to pass a budget, sure, but this is not the right way to do it. This is going to increase spending for the Children's Health Insurance Program. It's also going to increase spending for the Pentagon. So it's increasing spending for things that people on either side of the aisle agree with, 
And they say, you know, the, the Democrats are happy enough because they have the children health insurance program. The Republicans should be pleased enough that they get Pentagon spending. And at the same time, it's raising spending, you know, and and this is also coming two months three months after we've had the Trump tax cuts where we know we're not going to be bringing in quite as much money, you know, from a tax perspective. So the pot is going to be smaller and yet we're spreading the pot out thinner, you know, in that regard. And ultimately, you know, he does this grandstanding. I don't mean it in a facetious way, by the way, I want to talk about Pelosi. They're, they're making a point. And I think that's an important thing to do. Make a point. Uh, Rand Paul does this, and then ultimately it passes through the Senate. It goes to the House. It passes through the House. The president signs it into law on Friday, and boom, we're good. We're set. We've got a budget through basically two years, which is, <laughs> in recent times, feels unheard of. That feels practically long-term, and I can, I can think of very few things in life where two years is truly long-term. In, in this case, it seems to apply. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson here on Positively Politics on 88.7 The Diamond and talking a little bit about this budgeting crisis that has now been avoided, then at least you know we won't have to address it for two years, but who's winning and who's losing? I talked about Paul standing up and, and discussing his disagreements with the budget. I also want to talk about Pelosi. So she stood up, I think this was Wednesday, and talked for eight hours nonstop in uh, four inch heels I might add and as someone who is a big fan of high heels I'm very short in person they give me height they I, I like the way they make me look um four inch heels are tall heels I I wear them I'm quite a bit younger than Nancy Pelosi and I do not wear them for eight hours standing that would hurt but she talked for eight hours about her problems with the budget in particular the fact that it was not going to address immigration and if you remember when we talked about the government shutdown last time, you had this, the government shutdown, the, the Democrats say, well, we refuse to vote for this budget because we need to discuss immigration. We got to discuss DACA. We, we have to figure this out. And ultimately, they refuse to put the votes in favor. So the Republicans don't have enough votes to pass it in the Senate. You have this government shutdown for all of three days that ends with the McConnell pledge on Monday where he says, we're going to address immigration. And they are going to address immigration next week, but it's nowhere included in the budget deal. You know, it was a yet another can kick down the road or punt, if you will. Fourth down, not made. And so Pelosi gives this long oratory speech, again, grandstanding and not in a negative way, but talking about the problems with this and, and how she and some members of her party are vehemently opposed to the fact that they don't have a lot of negotiating power. You know, the Democrats are the minority party right now in the Senate and the House. There are very few things they can do other than shut down the government. And it seems that they and, and most people agree that shutting down the government was a bad tactic last time around. I'd say I'm lukewarm on it. I don't think it's great. Of course, I don't want our government to shut down. I think it's very problematic. But I also understand in 2013, the Republicans facing the Affordable Care Act and, uh, you know, being strongly opposed to it. That was their only opportunity. That was their only route or strategy. And I think you could say the exact same thing for Democrats in this position. They don't have a lot of maneuvers. There's very little as the minority party they can do, except work really hard and hope for great turnout in November in their favor. Regardless, Pelosi talks for eight hours and, and discussing DACA and immigration. And I think if you look at the budget and this who won, who lost, it's the biggest 
non-winning victory <laughs> either party could expect. Much to the opposite of Rand Paul in terms of increasing the deficit. In this case, she's not as concerned about that, but with regards to immigration. Why didn't the Democrats pass the budget through the first time? Because they wanted a deal on immigration and DACA. And what did they get this time? Not that. <laughs> and, and I think that's why you see, you know, this, this great divide. When you look at the overall numbers, just look at the House. Okay, We had 73 Democratic members supporting the budget and 67 Republicans opposing it. This, this is an odd twist of bipartisanship. Because it's bipartisan, but you still have people that are being excluded from the conversation, or at least that are sharing their dissatisfaction with it. And I think when you look at what it stands for, that's what makes it so tricky. So this increased, just to give you a sense of the numbers, so for the Pentagon, it increased um, their portion an additional $165 billion, which the president, President Trump, tweeted was a big victory for the military. Um, and at the same time, it increased the spending. It basically allowed the state children's health insurance program, also known as CHIP, uh, C-H-I-P, it, it allowed it to live. It, it revived it from a financial perspective. But that cost a lot of money. And nowhere in here, you know, <laughs> nowhere in here were they actually discussing immigration and DACA. And so this is something that we expect will come up next week. And that's one of the things that both um, in the House and the Senate, they have said, yes, we're going to be talking about that. Yes, that's an important priority. At the same time, you, you passed a budget, but you didn't get what you said you wanted to accomplish accomplished. So what what did you accomplish? I feel like it's such a hollow victory. And when I look at it from a, you know, a citizen perspective, you know, if, if we evaluate this, it's it's good. Voters will forget that this is a temporary solution and it's a longer term one relative to things we've had. So I think it helps the incumbents as we look forward to uh, to the general election coming up not too terribly far away and certainly a primary election. And at the same time, if we're considering it in that perspective, you know, there there is a lot to be concerned with from the financial health of this country. And so, you know, this in some ways we're in unprecedented territory but I, it's tough to say that this was a victory. This was a victory in which I think everyone lost, um, even those who aren't fully aware of it. And at the end of the day, we're just adding to the deficit. And the the big question is, does it matter? Do people care? And I think it's good. I, I want to have spending on the programs we think we need to have spending on. And I think that the policies should be guiding public discussion. And public discussion should be influential in that policy. It should matter in that policy. In, in this case, I'm not sure that's exactly what we saw. I don't think that's what we got. If we look down, so let's go from federal level. Let's go to the state level, shall we? This is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson on Positively Politics here on 88.7 The Diamond. Uh, just got done talking about DACA, the budget, all of the craziness there. But if we're looking at the state level, you know, we're halfway through the state legislative session. And this has been a short one. It's a non-budgeting year. Oftentimes, I find those to be... I don't want to say less interesting, but certainly you don't have the the give and takes that you have in a budgeting year. And that's one of the fun things in Indiana when we know we're going to be doing budgets every other year. You expect that when on those moments and those months, those discussions leading up to the decision of the budget, you know, you expect some crazy political moves and some concerning policies, some fascinating policies, some wild policies. 
You know, those are also occurring at the same time when we're not having an election for good reason. We don't want to be doing a budget and then people getting voted out of office because, hey, they had to make really tough decisions. Take note, Congress. And that was really difficult and voters are upset and thus they they are punished by being elected out of office. If we look at some of the things that have come up in this state legislative session, I think there are quite a few interesting bills. Uh, one of the things that is fascinating to me, the dichotomy between two important alcohol pieces of legislation or pieces of legislation involving alcohol. That's probably a better way to say it. But it looks like it's going to be a go for the Sunday alcohol sales. And and that's really remarkable. If you had told me, you know, in Indiana in 2018, we will be voting and it will most likely happen in the state legislature for us to have CBD oil. And I probably would not have known what that was until this past legislative election cycle. Um, and we will also be voting to allow Sunday alcohol sales on beers. I would be in shock. I, I would not expect this um, for quite a while. And, and not because it's progressive. No, most states have things like this. And, and not because I think it's at odds with our Hoosier values, you know, but because of the interest involved and because of what passing legislation like this means. I, I can genuinely say I'm truly surprised. But one thing that's interesting is the cold beer sales seemingly is going nowhere. Right? But the Sunday alcohol sales will pass. And as I've, I've thought about this a lot, I've read a lot of different analysis. And one of the things you can always think about is what makes sense to voters and how do voters translate those ideas to their elected representatives. And I, I heard this great comment. I wish I could remember who because I would attribute it to them. But this is not an original. This is not something I came up with. But I could not agree more. Where they said that for many years, as we would always talk about Sunday alcohol sales in December and January coming up to the state legislative session, I wonder if they're going to pass it. And then it never went anywhere. Year after year after year. It, that picks up momentum. That strikes a chord with voters. And for me, this legislation is its nice. I think this is good. It's not the the most important thing to me, honestly. Policy-wise, I, it just doesn't resonate with me as a person. But it obviously does with a lot of other people. And I can understand and respect that. But that was something for the Sunday alcohol sales where you had voters that were actually now translating their dissatisfaction to their elected officials. And they were communicating this and saying, hey, this is something we think is important. This is something I want to see done. Like, that is the beauty of democracy because that's exactly how it should work. And then your elected representatives take into consideration your ideas and they're making decision and policy with that in mind. I, I'm careful not to say because of it. I, you know, I value and I respect our state legislators and I value and respect the policymaking process. We don't have a pure direct democracy in this country for very good reasons. Our founding fathers did not trust people. <laughs> they created the Electoral College because they thought you couldn't trust voters. And that was at a time when many people in this country couldn't actually even vote. You know, I love my founding fathers, but gosh, they could be cynics. You know, if, if we're looking at it from a state level, I think what's fascinating here is the role that the public is playing in making these state policies. We don't even have direct democracy in this case, but these are people that are upset about the, pol the policies we have, and they're communicating it with their elected official. 
Same thing with the CBD oil. Now, this is something that honestly is relatively new to me. I was unfamiliar with why this was a thing and what this was. It doesn't impact me in my daily life. But one of the things that when you look at the CBD oil, what made it so influential was was not even that it was around, really and truly. It was the fact that our attorney general at the state level, Curtis Hill, made this this big remark about how he was strongly opposed to it and that we would never have this in the state of Indiana. And that gets people's attention, you know? And when he came out against it, that's when people say, well, wait a second, but why, right? Why is that the case? And so oddly, by making these kind of remarks, he in fact mobilized opposition. And and it looks like, again, you're going to have this this product and this policy passed. So just as a reminder in terms of where it's been, last year there's legislation that was passed that allowed the use of the CBD oil for those who were suffering with seizures and were already on a registry. Okay, but what this would do would be essentially expanding it. So it would allow for the sale and the use of the CBD oil and realizing that it has, they're testing this, but it has very, very, very little they say uh, less than 0.3%. So I think that's the subjective measure is very, very, very little. But very, very, very little of the psychoactive ingredient THC, which is what a number of people who are opposed to legalizing marijuana would cite as their main reason. Right? This is a small, teeny tiny fraction of this, which is otherwise really helpful for people for medical reasons. This is not like going out and getting high. This is like making sure they can manage seizures and things that are life-threatening, um, medical emergencies, being able to keep those in check. You know? And so this is a policy, again, that looks like it's a go at the state level. And I, I can't help but think this is policy in action, and this is grassroots organizing, and this is community involvement that's, that we see transpiring right here. And there's a lot of stuff that still has to go through the state legislature. A lot of policies I know I'm keeping a keen eye on. And it's unclear if they're going to pass through, if they're going to make it or not. And, of course, it's also an election year. So people are being careful. They're being cautious. You know, I'm not surprised that we had a relatively tame first half of the legislative session when you keep in mind that just yesterday was the filing deadline. And so no one wants to be too radical or wild when you don't want to bring out a, a challenger, especially not in the primary that can knock you off, you know, because you did something or said something crazy, you, you put out a bill there that you knew was going to be controversial. I'm looking for those to come out next, you know, in the limited time we have left in the state legislature. I'm looking to see what happens there. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson here on Positively Politics on WICR 88.7 The Diamond. We've talked a little bit about the national level in terms of politics. We've also gone down and talked about the state level. Uh, last big thing here, um, not to neglect them, there's certainly a lot going on, but is, is looking at our local level of government. And I have to say, sometimes I do feel neglectful. I like using that word here because generally speaking, local government relatively runs fairly smoothly. And there, there are hiccups, there are bumps. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I pay attention to this stuff and I understand that, but... We haven't seen the kind of political turmoil and the sheer chaos. I don't, can't think of a better word for it. The kind of chaos that we've had ensuing in our city county council now for at least the last two weeks, arguably you can say since January 8th. 
And that date, of course, marks the time where former City County Council President Maggie Lewis, a Democrat, had been voted out for the replacement of current City County Council President and Reverend Stephen J. Clay, another Democrat, who was able to coalesce a group of voters, kind of going an interesting bipartisan route, but looking for the disaffected Democrats and those Republicans who felt like they weren't getting their fair share um, under Lewis's leadership in order to allow himself to, to be elected president. And I think that's really interesting because you say, well, that happened not quite two months ago. Or, I mean, not even really, a month and a half ago, if I'm being more accurate with my math here. And then, of course, last week what we had transpire was Stephen J. Clay had fired the council clerk, the clerk's assistant, and also the council attorney, saying that he had the right to do that, that that's just transition of power. And he was part of a new administration. But the fact that it came two days after a Monday vote of no confidence, which meant that coming up here on February 19th, we're going to have a new election and seeing within the city county council, not us. I say we as in them. The city county council is going to have a new election to see if they're going to vote in a different city county council president. And it looks very likely that within the span of less than three months, we will be um, seeing our new third city county council president. And you think, oh, my goodness. So in this past week on Thursday morning, the people that Clay had fired and actually it seems uh, some additional people as well came forth and brought a lawsuit against their removal, saying that they did not have, they were not justly removed, that he did not have that authority, but they were responsible to the city county council, not to the president of the city county council, and that they wanted to continue and maintain their jobs until another replacement was found. Now, in addition to this, if you say, well, why would the president of the city county council be doing all this? Why would he have fired these people? Um, why would they be bringing a countersuit? In addition to all of this sheer chaos, you have the city county council president, Reverend Stephen J. Clay, saying that he believes there were illegitimate pay raises given to two of these council staffers under the Lewis administration. And so he, he notes that there are some things that are missing from the office in terms of files, he says, um, and that this was an attempt to uncover or to cover up, I guess, the pay raises. And, and so that, that is part of an impetus for what he is doing. And I don't know who's right or who's wrong. I don't, you know, as a voter, I can have my opinions there, but certainly as an analyst, there's there's not enough information to say like oh this person is correct and this is not I I'm looking at the facts and re- reporting them as we see them I, I think ultimately that's up to you to make that decision but but more than that I can say as someone who values good government and someone who's interested in policy and change and the status quo within our community and and things that I think are really important none of this is being examined while we're going through something like this. And at the end of the day, this is just stopping. This is gumming up the works from other things really going on that are truly important, that aren't the politics, but the policy. And if we were to change our focus, if we could really refocus ourselves into the policy and focus on that more and less on the politics, I think we'd be in a better position as a city. You know, and that should be our community focus. That's what I want our elected leaders 
focusing on. And that's what I think voters should be considering, too. Now, last thing I want to talk about before I go, hopefully you had a chance to catch the Super Bowl. I have to say I had no strong opinions about either teams, but it was a really fun game regardless of that. And if, if you did have a chance to catch it, then you caught this, <laughs> I think, very humorous. Maybe some people are calling it infamous. Uh, Jonathan Lamb Super Bowl ad. I'm blown away to see a congressional race. This is for the 6th Congressional District, uh, if you're paying attention. But a congressional race advertisement during the Super Bowl. And I'm a fan of uh, campaign ads, and you don't usually catch them at a time like that. But talking about the role of lambs on the White House lawn. And I know uh, it certainly got a good chuckle. <laughs> My students said, uh, they came to class, and I'm like, was that fake? Was that real? And I think it was. But for uh, for its corniness, I have to say, you know, kudos to him. That that takes a lot of guts. And it certainly got us talking. You know, talk about water cooler discussions on a Monday morning. The only two ads that I remember from the Super Bowl were the Tide commercials, which were fantastic, and then the Jonathan Lamb 6th District ad. So there you go. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your Saturday. Shoot me an email. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to hear? Uh, my email is L as in Laura, M as in Mary, W-I-L-S-O-N as in Wilson. So that's L-M Wilson at symbol U-I-N-D-Y, U-N-D dot E-D-U as in education. Always love hearing from you. Please reach out to me. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of your Saturday. For WICR 88.7 The Diamond and Positively Politics, this has been Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. Thank you and take care.